Oh god, my brain is just forgetting words. This is going to be a good good podcast. <laughs> oh no. Oh, oh no. Oh no. Uh, you know, it's not even like we're going to be like, well, at least we've got some good comics to talk about. It'll just be bad all through. Oh man, I tell you. Our, plus, I, we're only talking the- theoretically about four comics. Although, I read the rest of Days of Future Present and Corvac Quest. I don't know if you did. Oh god, no. I. Well, I will tell you. I will tell you the end of these of the the stories then, and okay. also in Days of Future Present, parts two and three are misnumbered. No, really. Part three is actually part two, and part two is actually part three, and they say this in the annuals because they fuck their deadlines up. Mm, that's hilarious. Well, and they're like, why is this part two? You tell me, Fendi. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is hilarious. Hello, Whatnots. Welcome to Baxter Building, episode 41, where... Myself, Graham McMillan, and my esteemed partner, Jeff Lester, fight some of the worst comics we've ever read, especially as part of this series. Fantastic Four Annuals, 19, 22, 23, and 24. Every single one of them are crossover. Every single one. Yep. Every single one, not very good. I think that's safe to say. Jeff, would you agree? I, I absolutely would. I would I would heartily co-endorse I, that. I was going to wonder if you were going to stick up for 19. You know what? I wondered as well, because I actually wrote a review on the Wait What Podcast website way back when, when I, like, I don't know, got a wild hair up my butt and read Fantastic Four Annual 19 and the companion uh, Avengers Annual 14. Um, but I dove into them this time and I have to say, like out of all the annuals that I read for this little batch, I think Avengers annual 14 is better than actually <laughs> the rest of them. Yeah. It, it kind of really technically is. You were just saying that cause you didn't read uncanny X-Men annual 14. Yes. The final chapter of days of future present. Yeah. Which we'll get there. We'll get there, everyone. But yeah. let's just say that story. Holy. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's it's four annuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, annuals from 1985, 1989, I'm a dude what likes the Inkleheart uh, FF because I'm like, this was okay. And interestingly enough, for people playing at home, uh, FF Annual 21 on Marvel Unlimited drops the second backup story, which is the uh, Crystal and Quicksilver uneasy reunion tale. Um, oh, interesting. Which I thought was a little strange. And also, uh, unless I unless I screwed this up, um, FF Annual 23 is not on Marvel Unlimited at all. It is, it is not. Yeah, so... And actually, there's a bunch... It's funny you say that the FF Annual 21 drops the backups because the backups... So, from 20... 
two onwards, it's a main story and backups. Yes. And that's across the entire Marvel line. And on Marvel Unlimited, it seems to be entirely random whether they are including the backups of these comics or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if you read 24 on Marvel Unlimited, but for some reason it drops the two-page origin of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, which is strange, right? That I found that I found that quite odd. It has they... everything else in it, but it yeah. drops the two-page origin of the Fantastic Four, which is super weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's face it. The, the annuals, back in my day, the annuals were a slightly different beast than what the annuals morph into or appear to morph into by the time we get to these FF, you know, the the bigger crossovers. I mean, for one thing, like, because I'm just an old, old fart, most of the annuals that I read were largely self-contained and dull. Every once in a while, if you had someone with any ambition in them, which is to say Roy Thomas, you would occasionally get, like two annuals that might cross over like I seem to feel like he did a Marvel 2-in-1 annual that maybe tied in with an Invaders annual or something like that. Yeah, no, you know? no, there definitely was and there was also Starlin doing the Avengers annual that ties oh, in with right. Marvel 2-in-1 Yeah, which is, which is by all means probably the, the gold standard of crossover annuals in terms of in terms of the amount of money that it's gone on to make Marvel certainly, but <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but so it was very strange for me when I got to issue uh, annuals twenty three and twenty four, and we'll of course talk about them in more depth. Which were not only were these tie in stories that carried over to other annuals, but the backup stories were kind of weird as crap. I mean, not least of which is when you get to issues twenty three and twenty four. You basically get the Marsha Rosenberg backup adventures, right. which which continues like in an annual. Yeah, yeah, just it's a two part story, which isn't listed as a two part story, and takes place in two annuals, literally a year apart. Yeah, is is which it's is amazing. What were they thinking? Like there there was some crazy ass inventory stuff going on there. Well, there's also in twenty four, and you know we'll we'll go into this in more detail in a bit. But twenty four also includes a backup, which is tying in with a subplot from the Silver Surfer comic, not the Fantastic Four comic. Yeah, yeah, no, it like heavily, and I was just like, what? Like, and didn't even because it, because uh, I'll be honest, everyone. Like I said, I reread twenty and twenty one after reading nineteen, so it was just I was just covering such a wide spread of FF stuff that I, a I wasn't really sure when some of these issues were tying in with the my, my, where, where they were supposed to be taking place with the main title. Like they, seemed... I will give you all that information. Oh I my looked, goodness! I looked into that because I also was curious. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, especially as we get to the latter issues, mm-hmm. it gets weird. I do believe that. Believe me. It, it, it gets really, really strange. Let's start with annual 19, though. In 1985, the halcyon days of John Byrne. Oof. John Byrne's story and art and Joe Sinnott, special yeah. guest inker. Yes. And uh, I got to tell you, this was... Um... Uh, I'll run through the nickel tour of it, essentially, uh, where it's titled Summoned from the Stars and... Uh, uh, the gist of it is that a mysterious alien uh, lands in New York Manhattan Harbor, comes out, 
causes various degrees of chaos until uh, the police in confronting the alien turn around and are like, one of the guys is like, oh, I, I recognize this this thing. I know what's going on, but this was from back when I was a rookie. The FF gets summoned. Uh, the alien in his mysterious armor uh, undresses when sort of peacefully confronted by Reed, and it turns out to be the Infant Terrible, the Enfant Terrible, which all of us remember quite fondly from FF number 9, 11. I know they yes, mentioned all it of us here. remember quite fondly from something that we covered three years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, basically, what happens is we, we discover the Enfant Infant ter- Terrible because he uh, is in from a world where they never actually developed language because they have um, thought projection, shows uh, Reed and everyone the fact that the scrolls showed up, demanded that the uh, that the people of Elan make weapons for him. When they failed to do that, the scrolls were like, "Okay, we're just going to bomb the shit out of you," and essentially. Uh, the 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 family that of the the infant ter- terrible realize that Earth is their only hope, shoots their son to Earth. Sadly, does not gain Superman. superpowers. Yeah, that would have been very fun. But you basically see the infant terrible crying and Reed being like, "Oh my goodness, we have to we have to stop the scrolls." And of course, everyone's like, "But aren't the scrolls pretty much like their 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 menaces over the homeworld got destroyed by galactus and reads like no 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 of course not now it's like a scroll civ- galaxy wide civil war actually the great thing about it is is that there's an entire page of reed hypothesizing what would have happened and uh, of course is ma- basically right so uh turns out the infant terrible his little ship has crossed into the harbor is a special powered little dinko five person ship that's going to allow them to fly back to his uh planet and save his people or will they because in the first of you know the thing about the ff annual 19 is it's kind of I it reminded me a lot of an M Night Shyamalan movie in that there's a lot of <laughs> twists and it's relentlessly boring. So there's so many twists that kind of mean nothing, right? Yeah, I mean honestly, if you ask me, the hook that is set up in the first I don't know 18 pages is 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 basically a pretty decent one. I would be totally down with the FF helping a bunch of pacified godlike people who can't help but get subjugated by an intensely warlike race you know just because the warlike race is has like sort of a force of will that that the rest don't but no actually what's going on is the infant terrible is not actually the infant terrible at all he is a scroll and the um, strangely fat-shaming female scroll majesty who's... It's completely weird, right? Yeah, just really... Like, scrolls are shape-changing, but she is... It's, it's super strange. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so much about it that just makes no sense other than just creepy biases. Anyway, they're, they're trying to uh, 
basically her plan is that by destroying the FF, she is going to prove her superiority to rule the scrolls, and by destroying them will thus attract um, various factions and segments. So uh, all the scrolls shape change into various forms of the Elan. Uh, the FF get out of their ship, and people are like, the Sue's like, greeting people of Elan, the people of Earth salute you. You want us to meet your leaders? Very well then, lead the way and we'll be happy to. And of course, suddenly Reed bursts out with a, no, no, I cannot allow it. Attack them now, destroy them. Get, and then he gets shot by a scroll and you're like, what the fuck? But of course, in boring twist number two, Reed and the scroll have swapped places um, because, of course, Reed being Reed figured out everything and was way too convenient. I forget what the hell tipped him off that it was. But it, I mean, Wait, wait, no, but you've, you're actually missing over the fact that that's actually a boring reveal number two and three. Right. Where Reed gets shot and turns into a scroll. Yes. And it takes another th three pages. Yeah. To see that Reed has taken the place of the original scroll. Well, actually, the thing that kind of sucks is there's a fight scene then you see uh, the original scroll wearing the, the suit of armor. Um, for, for like three quarters of a page. Yeah. She's like, why don't you report? Right. And then he's like, it's me. Right. Reed Richards. Great sound effect, which is one of those things where it's like, that would sort of be fine, except I think that Byrne actually thinks that we're supposed to be thrown by that when the whole reveal clearly is like what happened three pages earlier for the rest of us we can because otherwise you'd be out. like where's reed has yeah. reed always been a scroll is that what we're supposed to think yeah maybe reed's always been a scroll everyone yes uh so reed then uh manages to subdue the scroll queen who's like damn it and here comes the twist because i haven't defeated you and will not gather the troops to me all is lost and the death knell uh, is sounded for the universe itself, which is what? So part two, Heart of Darkness, shows the FF having captured the scrolls and put them in a flame cage and are flying through space on their super scroll ship to actually get to the asteroid power station. I, I just I have a, a question before we go any further. Why would a flame cage cause any problem for shape changers? Right. They could turn into bugs and fly right through, right? I mean, it's just, there's there's so much that... I mean, this is... I wanted to get through the summary before I started bitching <laughs> okay, about the story. Let's, let's, yeah, let's get through the summary. Right? Yeah, but so uh, basically they get to the power station. Their trick is to sort of try and sneak in. It's the broadcast power generator that beams huge amounts of uh, energy across intergalactic space to power the super scroll and do a variety of things. Now it's privately owned. Um, and the whole goal is they need to break in there and stop the super bomb that a scroll dissident is going to set off and uh, the hyperwave bomb. Uh, the FF basically are like, hmm, I don't know if he's telling the truth. What's the noise? It sounds like there's fighting on the other side of the wall. They open it. It's the Avengers. Or is it? Clearly everyone thinks that they each other are scrolls, but manage to resolve it in literally a page and a half. Uh, it's, it's, it's literally the stupidest way. 
Yeah. In a the way, the dumbest way. If if the scrolls had literally just been paying attention to what the Fantastic Four and Avengers had been up to, they could have faked it just as successfully. What actually one of the things that I think is really funny is uh, when you get to the Avengers issue, there's a long period where the Avengers suspect that Thor that they've encountered is a scroll and the way that they figure out that he is a scroll is they ask him basically a misleading question and then when he answers it as if it's truth they're like aha you know you are not up to you clearly haven't been reading the you know the avengers let's beat the pudding out of him then when they encounter the ff they try the same tactic if you really read richards how are things at the Baxter building? This deliberately misleading question, which Reed then answers correctly, if you think about it, should also make the FF think that what they're dealing with are Avengers scroll imposters who are not fully up to date about the fact that the Baxter building right? have been destroyed. Yeah. So it's just one of those classic weird fucked up things now what's interesting is uh basically the bomb's about to go off ever the power sequence is peaking uh captain marvel jumps into the main control room this is the captain marvel who is monica rambeau who has all sorts of kind of like almost limitless powers by being able to turn into light and manipulate all all forms of energy she flies into the energy matrix um Captain America orders her to burn out the machine, and Reed Richards, of course, is like, no, don't. Um, fortunately, Captain Marvel figures out that she it was not a good idea. Anyway, the big hyperwave bomb is set off, but here's the thing. It is only designed to affect the scrolls. The scroll dissident has decided to essentially um, remove the shape-changing powers from the scrolls. So... They no longer have the ability to change shape. The One of the super baddie guys who's been running around in a suit of armor is now completely fucked up because he cannot basically get out of it because he had to like manipulate his scroll shape to get into the complex set of cyborg body armor. Ah, and then, amazingly enough, there is a completely boring conclusion where Captain America tells uh, the dissident Skull, Skrull Prince, who is a sort of been a background supporting character here, that um, he now has the chance, the Skrull people will have a chance to come together and embrace their differences, the differences that can come from no longer changing their shape to look different, but now must all look the same. What? One page epilogue, and then boom, it's done. Now, I to run you through it, the Avengers, it is worth saying, is is a huge chunk of it are exactly the same pages. Literally the uh, yeah, exactly it, it's, the it's same like pages. The last third or so? Yeah, it's the last third. Same. Yeah, exactly. The pages where the FF break through and encounter the Avengers apart from the framing sequences that show them like up to the part where they encounter each other from a different angle at that point the confrontation sequences through the bomb sequences there's an additional page or two that's um thrown in there like in the page of the avengers annual we see captain marvel inside the machine and her decision not to destroy the power matrix and why but it is essentially exactly the same pages and it's kind of brilliant in a way that 
John Byrne probably got paid double duty for that. Also, if you are curious if the whole goal was to kind of um, inker shame, uh, embellish shame, <laughs> Joe Sinnott into yeah, retiring. Kyle Baker's it, inks in the Avengers issue are so much better, especially in those pages. Fucking gorgeous. Yeah, in those pages in particular, great overall. And frankly, Burns' issue... Burns' issue shows that, A, Sinnott is not able to bring the life to Burns' pencils that are kind of needed, but also um, Burn himself is one boring-ass collaborator because in, in the sense of during the course of the FF annual, um, it as I said, it opens with the, uh, the arrival of the faux infant terrible, you know, a complete misleading psych out which takes three four five six seven eight eight pages before the ff even get show up and of course they're just there so there's a two-page sequence of johnny dining with alicia then he bumps into reed she hulk and sue and of course this being a john byrne comic there's actually a panel explaining how Reed and everyone was able to basically get so much closer to the destination considering they were in a farther destination to begin with. It's total John Byrne. It was like, <laughs> boy, that was fast. How'd you guys get back to square one so quick? We were already headed back when we spotted the flare torch. Like, John Byrne, again, part of me wants to say, like, you know, that I... I do know that there are comic book nerds that probably will nitpick at that level, but the fact that John Byrne is way ahead of them in the nitpicking is supposedly a point of pride for Byrne. You can just tell. Anyway, just the fact that you find out that it's the infant ter terrible, it's literally, again, by the time they get into the ship to fly into space, where basically the end of the first act is nine is 18 pages in a 14 a 40 page comic yep so the battle with the scrolls and the scroll queen is like another huge chunk of like it's another 10 pages so there's really the whole meat and potato of the episode which is the ff landing on this power ship being embroiled in the middle of you know scroll civil war with a super bomb about to go off and the avengers which they are supposed to sort of you know should fight but don't and then sort of team up with gets wrapped up in like a really dull 12 pages like it's not it's really not exciting the amount of and this is this is kind of what bothers me, but but uh, well, let me let me talk about Avengers fourteen. By contrast, Avengers Annual fourteen starts with a bunch of scrolls breaking in to free the dissident prince who's been stored in prison, who's in a very cool the scroll and the iron mask, so he's not allowed to change shape or anything. Uh, the Avengers are in space, having just managed to more or less defeat defeat Nebula, who has been driven off. And uh, Fire Lord has almost been killed. Uh, Eros slash um, God, what the hell? Star Fox is obsessed with them. They immediately have to try and go find Nebula. He's super, uh, you know, insanely driven, and this is because nobody but knows that Nebula has 
revealed to him that she is the daughter of Thanos and therefore, or is it granddaughter? I She's the granddaughter of Thanos. Yeah, granddaughter of Thanos and therefore his great niece. And therefore he's got a personal investment. For whatever reason, he doesn't tell the Avengers. But he is basically driven to chase them to a destination which ends up, they're in space and encountering World War biplanes. Graham, all of the, what I just told you, like the biplanes in space attacking the spaceship and then maneuvering them, well, they don't attack it, but they threaten it, and maneuver them into a dirigible. The Avengers come out and are having to show, you know, deal with uh, what appear to be human gangsters that are actually scrolls that are controlled by the, you know, who are led by a mercenary who looks just like Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca. By the time all of that happens, it's page 13. Like <laughs> that is the point at which Johnny and Alicia are sitting there and Johnny is saying things like, yeah, it's hard to believe I've had so many girlfriends, but you're the one for me. Woo woo. Well, he Spoilers, doesn't just Johnny. say that. He also mm-hmm. says, I hope this is the real thing. Cause if it's not the real thing, Hey, what the fuck's the real thing going to feel like? Johnny, you smooth motherfucking talker. I know, right? It's like, hoo-hoo, I gotta tell you, nothing like introducing an element of doubt after you've betted your best friend's girlfriend. Like, hmm, actually, in a way, maybe that really does make uh, it seem kind of authentic. I don't know. <laughs> so, so yeah, we, we managed to get backstory for the prince. We actually managed to get everyone's favorite, like, fifth banana the scroll warrior raxor who everyone remembers fondly from his cameo in x-men 137 and then his backup appearance is ff annual 18 he's sort of you know the the soldier with honor who decided that he had to free the prince because you know they're the only people that he feels can can actually the the idea that the prince will end the civil war and people will unite underneath him but Unfortunately, what happens is they've all found out about this um, power station and the dissidents who are planning to unleash the horrific universal-wide dimensional bomb. So the FF, uh, the sorry, the Avengers show up in costume as thirty gangs, thirty-style gangsters. Oh, and I should mention in a nice continuity shout-out, of course, the reason why. The the reason why we've got Humphrey Bogart and dirigibles and World War airplanes is these are the scrolls from FF 90 or 91, um, one of Kirby's last issues where the scrolls are basically dressing up as are obsessed with gangsters after watching movies and TV and basically that old ripoff of Star Trek a piece of the action comes back into play here which would be pretty nice if it wasn't for the fact that Grunwald and company have have brought it back to essentially wipe out any such charm forever if they can help it so uh, yeah so the Avengers break into the ship they um, basically Thor seems to show up or does he spoilers he doesn't and yet then when they encounter uh the F the FF instead of immediately leaping into big old fight scene, they um, they of course resolve it really stupidly. And again, what you get to see is literally so much of the same art done all over again, but inked differently. And let's face it, far better by Carl Baker. So 
In 41 pages, the Avengers Annual looks gorgeous, has a constant through line of action, has things happen, and even though arguably it could be said is filled with just as much relentless exposition as John Byrne's stuff is, it is somehow far more preferable. If only because the Avengers are a team where more than one person is allowed to deliver exposition <laughs> as opposed to the Fantastic Four. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Reading FF Annual 19 was a initially fond return to the days of John Byrne and very quickly became less fond and yes. down that road as the issue mm-hmm. went on. Yeah. Because yep. you do have everything that is bad about the burn run in this issue. Especially mm-hmm. Reed Richards. Reed Richards mm-hmm. as the human exposition machine who is never wrong. You know, the the thing that I think is interesting is the way in which it, it could be argued that you you could say like, well, which is the bigger drama cock block? The omniscient, untouchable, light speed, energy controlling Monica Rambeau slash Captain Marvel or Reed Richards. And I think it's really got to go to Burns Reed Richards because not only does he have a point where he completely like pulls out of his ass a supposition about the Scroll Civil War, which is absolutely, of course, entirely right. Then he has to figure out the plot twist uh, that the scrolls are basically trying to trick the FF in advance. But then you later have to have him explain that to everyone that already knows it, because the readers have to somehow, you know, just be in awe of Reed's brilliance. And I don't even remember how he figures it out. Like it's it's some sort of bullshit of like, oh, it's very clear that they, you know, this could never be the Elan because once I realized the visiting alien had not come from the home world of the infant terrible. Oh, right. Because it's one of those stupid ass like, um, yeah, as soon as your agent related his unlikely account, which wasn't keeping in my understanding of Elan nature, I became suspicious and checked the report on the alien arrival. Your pilot didn't make the necessary adjustments to appear to be entering from a beta Scorpii trajectory. And I'm like, ugh, really? You didn't see what what you said? You think you saw the direction it came from? You're in space, you jerk. He's got to land on Earth somewhere. The whole idea that it's like, But he landed on Earth in the wrong place, Jeff. Ah, I from the wrong direction. Why don't you understand that? Come on. I know. I know. Exactly. It's obvious, isn't it? I mean, come on. That's, you know, that's entirely within Reed Richards' scope. Anyway, uh, so ultimately, I have to give the whole thing over, if if only because, and this is the really weird part, John Byrne, left to John Byrne's devices, will draw his issue with, like, six-page wordless sequences of an alien stomping through New York that is utterly dull, Whereas um, in the Avengers, John Byrne working from Roger Stern's script has to show like 
insurrections and man in the iron mask and biplanes in space and all these things on a much much faster budget there's a lot less slack and then of course kyle baker comes in and finishes up and so it's beautiful but it is amazing that you would think to realize that it's the same guy drawing this stuff and so yeah, so FF Annual 19 is, is like you said, it's burn at the least flattering part of burn. And even the parts that start off fun just end up um, just sabotaging themselves. And I think this is the thing that sort of bothers me about the whole thing overall. Even though Avengers 14 is the better annual, uh, it's still part of sort of the... Grunwald and company attempt to bring the wonder back into Marvel Universe by taking all the cool stuff out. Like the whole idea that you're going to remove the shape-changing nature of the scrolls, which admittedly is a pain in the ass because as you point out, it never makes any sense. It's not consistent. There's no reason why they can fly through fucking, you know, turn into gnats and fly through a flame cage no matter what size it is. Um, the idea that we're going to be scared that they're now just generic baddies who are warmongers, it's like, I don't it, see it, how you can even make the case for that. It was you know? the strangest shift. I, and one that, I know it's been undone by now, mm-hmm. but I wonder how quickly after this issue came out, after these issues came out, I should say, that people in Marvel were like, this is a terrible idea. This this does nothing. I think pretty quickly, although I could be wrong because I do get a sense. Does it not become a a plot point? Although I I don't think it gets resolved, but does it not become a plot point for Engelhart's Silver Surfer? That uh, that the Skrulls are are trying to get their shape-shifting powers back throughout his entire run? Uh, It would make sense. I mean, I think it would make sense. I don't... I mean, part of me is like, I don't know. I mean, like this, along with the destruction of the Savage Land in Avengers, clearly neither of those things stuck. But how long they did they stuck for? I kind of suspect that once Tom DeFalco really got in place as editor-in-chief, that a lot of the undoing got undone but maybe maybe i'm wrong here here is and and you kind of touched on this but here is my major complaint with with annual 19 by the time they meet the avengers Mm -hmm. the fantastic four story is over well yeah i mean it's not very much so good story but it's over right yeah everything after that is the avengers annual and it's not like oh the two things have combined because all the stuff from that point on does not really get introduced. You don't get mm-hmm. introduction for the the dissident. Instead, you get yeah. a caption saying you better read the Avengers annual. That's true. And, that and is absolutely all, true. All yeah. the stuff about the the yeah. um doing away with the shape changing comes out of nowhere, but is part of the Avengers annual. That's so literally, right. no, that's a great point. Two thirds mm-hmm. of the way through this comic. The FF mm-hmm. will walk into someone else's comic and stay there. Yeah, and it is at a cameo level. They don't really bring do anything. anything interesting in there and and sort of vice versa. So you're absolutely right. I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of a fun little... Again, it, and this, this does sort of smack of both John Byrne 
uh, and also Marvel at the time, is you and I last week talking about Inv Avengers Infinity War and sort of talking about, for me, kind of like, yeah, it's like a summer annual feeling, which is like, it's kind of crazy that these characters are all on the same page and the idea that they're actually more or less done on brand is kind of remarkable. And one of the things that really is um, the thing that is that that is so frustrating about the FF Avengers annual crossover is it's literally these guys being like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a crossover where there was no continuity glitches between the two different issues? And it was like, well, how can we do that? Like, what if we get the same penciler? What if we have the same pages for the pages where the people cross over? And therefore, there's absolutely no way that, that, that you know, there's going to be some mistake that, that separates the two issues that, you know, is the sort of thing that will make John Byrne, like, you know, basically take a baseball bat to his whiskey cabinet again. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like... <laughs> I kind of want to go straight from you saying that to Annual 22. Oh, please do. Yeah. Because I, everything you're saying about the FF essentially being cameo players in their own comic is mm -hmm. even more true in Annual 22. The Fantastic Four Annual 22 comes from 1989. It's called For Crown and Conquest, as the cover announces. It's the awesome conclusion to Atlantis Attacks. And it's, you know, only being polite to say that the FF played no purpose in this comic. This is an <laughs> Avengers comic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's, it's kind of, I mean, even more so than Annual 19, where mm -hmm. the FF walk into an Avengers comic two-thirds of the way through. This is... From Jump, an Avengers comic, with the wonderful, wonderful, genuinely breathtaking thing of maybe the first seven pages are exposition explaining what has happened in the previous 13 chapters of Atlantis yeah. Attacks. It's the mm -hmm. longest exposition scenes, and it is multiple scenes, that yeah. I, I, can, I can ever remember reading. Because it yep. is literally just characters talking to each other going... So remind me again why we're doing this, Wonder Man. <laughs> okay, then I will thing. Yep. Three yeah. Three pages of flashback. Hmm, that sounds really interesting. And remind me who is on this Quinjet with us. <laughs> and it's seven pages. And he cuts to the bad guys. And the bad guys are like, why are we doing this again, bad guys? What is our plan now that we've banded together? Like, holy shit. Yeah, no. And this this one. Mind bending. And, and yeah. On top of all of that, the scripting in this annual in general is appalling, but in the exposition scenes in particular, you can tell that Roy Thomas does not give a shit. It's interesting. I really had that thing of, like, if ever there was an issue where, like, everyone involved, Roy Thomas, Rich Buckler, Tony DiZaniga we're all basically having fighting a prescription medication habit and we're like zonked out of their brain and unable to put any degree of like, I mean, this is like this annual depressed the shit out of me because it was, it was a terrible read by no, people I, I, I whose work mean, I've liked it's previously. The awesome Jeff. Oh yeah. Sorry. This was an awesome conclusion. <laughs> no, but this... it is. It's staggeringly bad. 
I, I'm it's... so amazingly lackluster on every level, yeah. including perhaps my favorite bit is the, the it's not even worth doing a plot synopsis of this because the plot of the comics is essentially the Avengers with the F Evento go to Atlantis, they meet the baddies, they fight the baddies, the baddies lose the end. That is that is essentially it. At one point, Namor shows up and is like, I am here! And they're like, oh, you're here! And then he just joins every, all the good guys. It's it's so lackluster. My favorite part, though, is Thor and Doctor Strange have to be written out of the comic. And they get written out of the comic in one panel because the Human Torch yeah. says, look, Thor, you and Doc have done more than your fair share. You can both just sit this one out here. And Thor <laughs> and Doctor Strange both go, okay, sure. Well, because they've, they've both been, like, they've both been mystically had their strength sapped sure, because it's a mystical in, menace. In what other comic do yeah. they not go, no, we must fight on until we collapse? Instead of yeah. someone going, you look tired, why don't you take a break? And they're like, sure. It's yeah. amazing. No, I mean, it's so much, it's all just terrible across the board. I was stunned, like, in that scene right before they get benched. Doctor Strange, and this is Roy Thomas writing Doctor Strange, says, I've cast so many spells today, I feel like a season's reruns of Bewitched. I know, it's and amazing. I'm like, you're like, wait, Roy Thomas, you, you should remember what Doctor Strange sounds like. Yeah, what happened? Like, no efforts put in there. Sherry is on the team and is a she thing. There's references to Ben, who appears as the thing the full time being in his exoskeleton which I would not know otherwise. Rich Buckler clearly doesn't know otherwise because he draws both things identical and, and in close-up without having, you know, without any distinguishing characteristics to tell who which one is which, you know, except when they're sort of fighting each other. Ugh. It's, and, I mean, it's interesting in the sense of, like, it's the wrap-up is, like, I guess this was supposed to be a Submariner story. Like, the whole thing is supposed to be, like, oh, here's... Here's sort of some sort of return for a status quo for Submariner, but it's it's all terrible. It's and what's interesting <laughs> is the way in which this conclusion, because it does have it moans on and on about the serpent crown and how that's related to Set and how Set is this dude from the you know the Dark Ages that is created. You know, the serpent crown is they basically take stuff from Englehart's run of the Avengers lightly season it with references from stuff that's been laid down like in like things like Thomas's Conan and Cole comics and then more or less does absolutely nothing of interest with it. The, what I think is amazing is the closest thing you have to some drama is seven women, the seven brides of set, these seven superpowered characters have been kidnapped and basically shackled um, underneath an enormous serpent crown and the two villains are more or less going to spin them around like a centrifuge until their essences drain into the serpent crown and power it a visual that is so lame Rich Buckler does not even bother to try and capture visually at all mind you um, and at one point when they're in the Quinjet after 12 stultifying pages of exposition someone goes huh i wonder who the other two people are because i can only think of five and i was like okay 
this will be interesting. There's some sort of drama set up, and then it's yeah, not. Then there's not. They're just like, yeah. oh, I guess it was Storm and Namorita. Actually, I don't even think it was Namorita. It's not. Which it's is Storm and someone part. else. Storm and Dagger? No, no. Dagger they knew about. It was it was uh, Atuma's like daughter or something like that. Like it's like like a super nobody. Atuma's kid Andromeda. Oh, yeah, Atuma's, yeah, Atuma's kid Andromeda. But it's Severance. It looks like Storm of X Men. But I heard she was dead, and that's it. It's at a tiny, tiny site, Topolin. It, it, it is a it, exactly in a tiny panel, mind you, that shows them all kind of tromping down. Like this, I mean. This really is so, this annual was so bad, it made me think of those Avengers issues that were drawn by Don Heck that we used to complain about, you know, like kind of that visually lackluster and this dull, it's, I guess it kind of is like a tribute to Roy Thomas's really bad issues of Avengers, like in the 40s or something like that. You can tell where Thomas is like, I'm going to try a character moment. And so he has, because yes. Sue has been captured. It's it's the death ever there because Sue has been captured. She's one of Seth's wives. Um, yeah. And Reed goes, oh, if yes. only I could be as attached about this battle as the Vision is, his wife's in danger too. Yet he goes about his business so coldly, so mechanically. What am I saying? The last thing I want to be is like that. Whatever happens, I'll face it as a human being, not a soulless android. Which, on so many levels, is just like that's your characterization. It, it's not like it's not even in character for reads. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm actually kind of curious about how much of this is, um. This whole issue, like, I don't know how much other work Thomas is doing at this point he is, for he is, Marvel. He is writing Avengers West Coast at this point. Oh, okay. Interesting. So he I, took I, it over, uh, like, right no, after wait, Burn is, Leaves? Is he? he does take it over right after Burn Leaves, but so I'm suddenly like, maybe Burn is still on the book. Burn is still on Avengers West Coast at this point. So I, I, I think he might be just doing Doctor Strange at, that, at this point, and that's it. Wow, so Doctor Strange is the character that he's supposed to have the handle on at this point? To be fair, maybe that is how Doctor Strange sounds in his book at that point. Well, sure. I, I mean, there is a thing. Maybe they decide to make him a little more flippant. He loses his eye and gains, you know, an Comedy. ironic... Yeah, exactly. He's like, hey, I'm a hipster now. I'm going to walk into bars with a cockatiel on my shoulder. Hey, want to see a magic trick? Doctor Strange, pickup artist. New from Roy Thomas. <laughs> oh, God, don't say that. Don't give them ideas. Yeah, no kidding. The House of Bad Ideas presents. But, Dan, it's, it's, this is such a, uh, an amazingly tossed off, entirely devoid of, of dramatic tension, boring comic. And the idea that it is literally the final chapter of a 14-part story and that it has all been leading up to this is yeah. stunning to me. Now you didn't read the other thirteen points parts. I, I right? read I read a bunch of them. I didn't read all of them, uh, in large part wow. because Atlantis Attacks in general is a really boring story. Mm -hmm. the, the, it's it's fair to say I'm not sure there is a good chapter of Atlantis Attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is definitely the worst of the ones I read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the finale. I mean, who walked away? I can't imagine. I mean, I'd, I'd, kid, I'd lie. Of course, some kid somewhere was like, that was the best story ever. 
You know what I mean? And then but hopefully they turn. Only, yeah, you can only. Think they turned eight. That, or yeah, something, they didn't read you know? any other comic ever. Yeah, like this basically. is how bad the story is. The second story in this issue, which is Mark Grunewald's at his most Mark Grunewaldian, is better than it. Oh wait, is that the story Savior that's of like the Lost Artifacts, where the entire plot is? Did you ever wonder what happened to all the cool stuff that was in the Baxter Building when it was blown up? It wasn't blown up because the Watcher saved it. Yeah. Holy shit! You know what? They cut that from the Marvel Unlimited thing too. Oh really? So you haven't read it, Jeff? No. It, yeah. Shit. It, no. It, there's it, the whole Peter it, Sanderson it. story. That's yeah, yeah, no, ridiculous. Yeah, Peter Sanderson ones. So wait, you also don't have the the Impossible Man story? No. Oh, you're missing out. Okay, so Saviors of Lost Artifacts is the plot that I just explained. It is a flashback story that happens, as it says, during the latter half of Fantastic Four 299. To give you Mm -hmm. some context here, this comic comes out at the same time as Fantastic Four 333. So it is literally a flashback story to a comic that came out almost three years earlier. Wow. Uh, the reason it is that particular issue is it's the opening of Four Freedoms Plaza, the replacement mm-hmm. for the Fantastic Four. It opens, mm-hmm. everyone's very happy. Reed and Sue go back to inside the building. They're like, that, that went well. And all of a sudden, they just discover a pile of their old shit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, mm-hmm. what? what? This can't be real. This stuff was destroyed in the Baxter building. Like, the Baxter mm-hmm. building blew up and this stuff was destroyed. And Reed's like, let me run some tests. And then he goes, oh, this is really weird. Okay, I've got a time machine. Let's go back to when the Baxter building was destroyed. And we can see what happened. Mm-hmm. So back to when the Baxter building was destroyed. They're invisible. They're going through that that burn issue. Although, really, it's it's like one panel, you see. Um, and they see that their stuff vanishes at that time. And they're like, that's that's super weird. Sure. They go back to their time. Reed, because again, Reed knows everything, Reed immediately calls for Lockjaw to be sent to them. Lockjaw appears and they go and visit the Watcher on the, on the moon. And the, wow. the Watcher's like, oh yeah, no, it's uh, what I did was I was just taking a look at it and it just happened to coincide with, with the Baxter building blowing up. And then I thought, I should give it back to you. And so, like, sorry I've had it for so long, I'm really sorry. And wow. Reed is like, that's kind of great. Hooray. And Sue's like, you big dummy. He's our pal and he saved our stuff. The end. Right. That's the entire story. Holy shit. And yet, I shit Holy you not, Jeff, that's a better story than the right one. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm kind of flipping through it now and I'm like, this is interesting. Like, seriously, it's there's something to there. And then it's followed by an Impossible Man story written by Gregory Wright and drawn by Hilary Barta, who, of course, you know, for those of us who remember Hilary Barta, it's like a pretty good match. There, oh my God. I, 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 the oh Impossible my God. Man story is great. The yeah, Impossible it, Man story, the, the joke is the Impossible Man visits Stan Lee in, mm-hmm. in LA and says, You were going to give me a comic. Why didn't you give me a comic? I want my comic. And Stan Lee goes, I'm, I don't do the comics anymore. I'm I'm making movies and TV. And he's like, oh, make me a TV show. <laughs> and Stan is sending messages to the FF and the Avengers going, help. The Impossible Man is here. Help me. And wow. the people show up and are like, oh, fuck, it's the Impossible Man. I hate him. And Reed in particular is really upset. He gets really, really upset that it's hilarious. the Impossible Man. And 
the joke at the end is yeah, they're saying if, if Fantastic Four say to Stan, just give him a TV show. Like, just mm-hmm. dance, get rid of him. Just give him a TV show. And Wonder Man shows up and is like, TV's dumb. You should have a movie. Wow. Like, well, you work in Hollywood. You you take him. That's the end of the strip. Then they're Holy like, shit. Wonder Man can just fucking take care of him. We don't care. He's 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 gone. And and there's a running joke that um when the FF are going to to deal with this. Shari gets pulled into the negative zone. Right. And the last panel is Shari in the negative zone, dressed as a French maid, cleaning up after Annihilus. And her thought balloon says, now this is degrading, not only am I reduced to being an unresolved plot thread, but I'm forced into being a sexist, stereotypical housewife. Wow. Holy God. And the sad part is is that, that they were actually, I assume, talking about the unresolved plot thread in that story, yeah. not unfortunately how she gets handled throughout no, the FF. Well, you no, because this issue comes yeah. out before the first Simonson issue. Yeah, exactly. So it's not exactly. like it's, it's not like they know exactly that she's going to become a nurse of plot threats. Wow, this is it's so well. Yeah, those two backups are far better. Than yes, story. far. Holy better. shit! I can't believe that I missed them. That kind of kills me. Wow. Wow. Well, then huh. you get the, you do get the, the Doctor Doom backup, which isn't really backup. It's like a page of Doctor Doom being like, "These losers think they're the FF's worst villain. I will give you plot synopsis of them." Yeah, that's actually missing in the Marvel Unlimited one as well. It's, so the, it's the, the only one you the only uh, backup you get is the Serpent Crown backup. Uh, yeah, Saga of the Serpent Crown with Peter Sanderson like recapping. So it was like, yeah kind of kind of so sad i'm like why would you cut out the rest of it i mean admittedly the serpent crown that one ties in but i think the the very next terrible annual the corvac one has most of the backups I think. uh so. you the definitely on yeah because because 23 isn't on unlimited as hell yeah. oh yeah sorry 23 is right gone altogether so now we have to talk about that right yeah which then i saw Graham McMillan, but, I gotta tell you, these these comics, it's it's not like they're good, but then Marvel Unlimited tries to handicap them. Like, right? what the hell it's, is that? Well, that's that? just it. So, so twenty two is the main story is a, is just a downright a bad comic, but the backups are at least entertaining, and the backups yeah. are missing from Unlimited. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. That's just terrible. It's, it's the weirdest thing. But hey, let's mm. talk about a bad comic. Uh, Fantastic Four Annual twenty three. From 1990, when Franklin comes marching home, oh, man, it's uh, yeah. it's written by uh, Walter Simonson and Bob Harris. Even though, oh, even though on the front page it says it's just mm-hmm. written by Walter Simonson, mm-hmm. but if you look through the issue, mm-hmm. it says somewhere because uh, because the credits are like throughout the story. I don't know if you noticed this at the bottom of the page. Credits go throughout the story. And then you get to page 23 and it says script Bob Harris. No. Yeah. That's why I was like that makes sense because I, I was shocked by I kept reading this being like this does not read like Walt Simonson. Like you know we talk about the fact that he's a witty writer. You know like he's it's a little. Because Simonson plots it and Bob Harris scripts it because the credits for this comic are literally hidden at the bottom of the page. Yes. Out, like, randomly throughout the issue. Wow. Wow. So Simonson and Bob Harris co-wrote it. And the idea that it takes two writers to write this comic 
is staggering. When Franklin Comes Marching Home is at once generic and at once literally nonsensical. And not nonsensical in the way that they want it to be nonsensical. I think you're right, yeah. But but nonsensical in the fact that it just it doesn't even track within the what is happening in this comic. F- read it and mm-hmm. find out. It just doesn't track. The the mm-hmm. plot is the FF comeback with Franklin from a day out. For Freedom Plaza has gone, but the Baxter building is there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the Baxter building, and they're like, this is weird. Why is the Baxter building there? And their old doorman is also there, and he's like, you're back. You you should go up. As they go up to the, the their their main floor, they're attacked by the Baxter building, and then attacked by the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Their their own versions of themselves from like the Kirby run, and it is yeah. explicitly the Kirby run. Not only because uh, artist Jackson Geis is is drawing on his Kirby influence, but specifically look at Sue's hair. Yes, clearly exactly the, mm-hmm. the Kirby era Sue. They have a fight because of course they have a fight, and they are defeated by the the original by the the early Fantastic Four, and mm-hmm. captured by them. Uh, mm-hmm. As they are being uh, experimented on by early Reed Richards, adult Franklin Richards wanders through and is like, everything's fine. What are you talking about? What? Nope. You shouldn't be here. At which point, young Franklin goes, why? Wait, he's not Franklin. I'm Franklin. The uh, The older Franklin basically explodes out of the building and in doing so, the Baxter Building turns back into Four Freedoms Plaza mm-hmm. because, of course, it does. Cuts to the lighthouse off the west coast of Britain, where Excalibur's hanging out, where uh, Rachel Summers collapses because something has happened. Something that has a sound effect goes crack, and she goes, "Um, no, no, that's impossible." What? It's the crack? It's not clear. Like, it's genuinely not clear. She seems to fall over and something goes crack. But by every other, you know, context clue in the story, it's a psychic attack. Why is Mm he making a cracking noise? Who can even tell? Meanwhile, adult Franklin is wandering around just just freaking out and going, I've run into Banshee in a forge, but you're young. I've exploded again. Cut to elsewhere where a cyborg wakes up and goes, oh shit, time travel's happening. Cuts to <laughs> the Power Packs family where they're babysitting young Franklin except it's adult Franklin and then the FF go to pick up adult Franklin after being attacked by their own building because shit happens and then they're like, oh, you're you're an adult after all and when they pick him up, he then disappears the end. You know, the thing that, of course, is interesting about it is because it's called uh, Days of Future Present, um, it, it like is kind of enough of a tip-off in that sense of the presence of Rachel, of adult Franklin, the fact that the weirdo drones that show up out of nowhere and begin attacking the FF at the end and are are you know, basically talking in prime sentinel speak, despite looking like nothing interesting in any way whatsoever. Uh, kind of like part of me is like, okay, 
how do I put this? Like, I'm impressed at how by dint of, I mean, I guess they assumed that everyone had read Days of Future Past. And if you do, there's a strong, you can sort of strongly infer what the storyline is and what's happening. You know, that, trust, that trust the... Trust me, Jeff, you can't. <laughs> I, I, I'm going I'm to tell you what the last chapter of this is in a bit. Well, I assume there might be a fake out, but yeah, the the way that it's set up from this first issue, it certainly makes it sound like the Franklin from Days of Future Past has managed to force his way back into the time stream to try and find Rachel, who he was in love with, I think, in Days of Future Past. Yeah, yeah. I there, feel like it was no, no, you're, yeah. you're actually 100% right. But there's a twist that uh, yes. <laughs> that you wouldn't believe. The <laughs> um, next, so there are three more chapters to this story. They happen in uh, X Factor Annual Five, New Mutants Annual Six, and Uncanny X Men Annual Fourteen. It's fair to say that you could skip the X Factor and New Mutants annuals altogether, mm. because nothing of any import actually happens in them. The mm -hmm. short version is Franklin shows up and does more like, what? No, what is happening? This is not how I remember things. And things explode. The end. Apart mm -hmm. from characters get involved. Banshee and Forge and X-Factor get involved. The New Mutants, who at this point are basically turning into X-Force. So Cable's there. They mm -hmm. get as well. Mm. It all comes together in X-Men Annual 14, where it is revealed, because of course it is, that the cyborg who has come back has come from the days of future past future. He is the guy who trained Rachel to be the hound that hunted other hounds. He transforms Cyclops and Sue Richards into hounds themselves to hunt down Franklin and Rachel, who have at this point reunited and are madly in love. Frank mm -hmm. Richards has gone, the young Franklin Richards has gone comatose. This is an important plot point. Uh, it is then revealed ultimately after lots of fights and everything adult Franklin Richards is dead died what in the future past it's his ghost that has come back to the past holy crap oh. it's, it's manifesting because Franklin Richards the kid has ghost powers and so Franklin Richards kid is now in a coma so that adult Franklin can be there. Because, of course, because he can't say goodbye to Rachel, but Rachel's like, no, you can. And no one can turn Cyclops and Sue back to normal, except I can because I'm the Phoenix. The end. Is that a Claire Is it Claremont written? Yes, yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> it is. And it's very Claremont. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it it's this is a four parter that basically exists because someone had to do a four part story that ran across these comics. And there's there's like there's nothing there's nothing gets resolved. <laughs> there's nothing. I mean, the only thing gets resolved is Adult Franklin, who appeared in the first chapter. Is that right? Sense? Like, there's no development. That's not true. There is a development which is entirely tangential to everything. Which is Storm and Gambit meet Banshee and Forge, which will carry over in the main series. Wow. It, that's the entire impact that, that this storyline has on all of their continuing titles. Wow. Well, that's 
Yeah. It was his ghost. Ooh. <laughs> Again, M. Night Shyamalan strikes right? for, like, yet another annual. Ay, ay, ay. Yep. That's... Let me tell you, I was so glad that I spent my time reading that comic. Yeah. I got to tell you, I'm sort of glad that I skipped all those other parts, but... <laughs> although, um... although that's nothing compared with the core pack, sorry. Oh, man. I uh, bet. The main story again in Fantastic Four Annual 23 is just terrible. Terrible. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it's, it's. I mean, I th- I, I'm not alone in thinking it's actually nonsensical, right? Even even having read the rest of the story, it feels particularly, this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens, but there's no real flow to the, to the issue. No, no, there, there absolutely isn't, and and it's fascinating to me how much, because uh, because again, the scene with a with where suddenly Rachel, you've got Rachel and Megan uh, hanging out on a sunny day in Britain, expositioning, and then suddenly you know Rachel has like a a moment and is like ah, and then dashes off is so it it very much reminds me of the way that Claremont structures his scenes at about this time mm-hmm. and yet somehow manages to miss all the quote unquote charm that Wait, Claremont yeah, it, it, brings it, to the material it, it misses the Claremont cuz Claremont structures his comics in this way perhaps but has a a verve in his dialogue and in his narration right. that kind of gets away with it by by lampshading the abrupt chips you know right right that, that he, well, he'll, he'll yeah. talk about the fact that like you know meanwhile what are these people doing like one of the the, the few joys of the uncanny x-men annual 14 mm-hmm. is claremont's overly verbose narrator mm-hmm. and also Claremont's X-Men by by this point, I mean, this is 1990, yeah, this is 1990, have a weird amusing themselves, by which I mean amusing Chris Claremont's angle to them. Mm -hmm. So the the annual actually opens with Rachel's basically trying to have her burger and someone tries to rob the, the diner she's in. And so she essentially switches off their brains. Mm-hmm. But is weirdly amused by it by for herself. It's mm. like I can't believe you guys would try and ruin my burger. I'm just gonna switch off your brains, and everyone else is like, "What's happening?" Whoa! And she's like, mm, "Fries." It's a sense of self, or it's a personality. That yeah. the, the Claremont personality helps really helps paper over his failings. Yeah, you know, you sort of buy into that tone of voice. You buy into to his. You know, wacky as shit, weird gonzo comics that he has created by this point. And Bob Harris's script has literally zero of that in the mm-hmm. Well, it's and it's fascinating because, in a way, you could sort of see how this. I mean, if we were like super fully up on 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 our Marvel history to to the lengths of like we could turn it into an interesting topic as opposed to me just pointing vaguely. But I mean if you think about it, we go on this is sort of the days of future past. Like we do get to see an intimation of the future of for Marvel of when Chris Claremont 
is booted off of the X-Men titles by Bob Harris, and you get a bunch of people who then proceed to do what we see done so poorly in this issue, which is kind of take Claremont riffs and take Claremont scenes and pacing and not be able to do it in any sort of satisfying way. It's an attempt to do Claremont as a genre Mm. and failing at it. Yeah. Well, which I think is, again, like, I mean, hardly surprising. That's going to be something that we go on to see. Exactly. That's going to be the X-Men line for at least the next five years. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it's, and I think that's fascinating. It's fascinating to me that they're aware that it is a thing to replicate, that they want to replicate it, and also that they fail with it. Like, actually, you know, thinking about it, trying to think about what this FF issue would be like if it was written by Claremont, um, I think, and I could be wrong, one of the things that he would do that would be a tip-off is he would make what Franklin's feeling and what Franklin's basically what Franklin needs and wants would probably be laid out a lot more cleanly. Yes. You know, um, it's interesting the way in which people want the Claire want to have that sort of Claremont impact, but they don't. Well, I mean, it's really hard of course, to, and maybe not advisable to try and write like Chris Claremont, but they are not really there's not really the effort to um buy into and lay out the characters emotional lives i guess so baldly the way that well that, that's just does. it there's an there's an interiorness interiorness yeah, there is interiority there, there's set, yeah let's go with interiority that works too but claremont's characters have inner lives mm-hmm they have, for the most part, roughly maybe one of three inner lives, because Claremont does like to recycle that sort of thing. But there is always a sense that Claremont's characters, even his bit characters, you know, this is something that Explain X-Men makes a joke out of. Mm-hmm. But even the characters that are introduced to die a panel later mm-hmm. will get like a line of dialogue that turns them into a person. Right. Right. You know, Claremont's characters, Claremont always approaches characters as people. Mm-hmm. Those that followed Claremont didn't. Yeah, they approached characters as a collection of accents and mannerisms and cliches. Right. Well, and again, that's where that's where the the nuance is so hard to nail down because, of course, the you know Claremont barely. It's because it's almost because Claremont believes in them that even though the characters are written almost identically or the same way, or Claremont is just as fixated on accents and cliches or one or two like talking points, but he, he, like you said, he scatters that throughout for everyone. And he really does do that sort of extra little bit of work. Whereas all of the dialogue in this issue, nothing exists for any other reason than to explain what's going on 
or drop the next clue as to what's happening next. Like there is a tiny, tiny, tiny little panel of Banshee and Forge. And Banshee says, I love New York. Crime, violence, passion, the Hard Rock Cafe. Just the place for a man of action like myself. And not only does that not sound like Banshee, but I mean, I'm sort of like, it's kind of half of a clever line, but it's also just sort of, I don't know. You know, that's, I don't know how to describe it. I was just like, that's as good as you've got? Like, there's a long way to get from there to Claremont, you know? Because that's, right, exactly. just, a yeah. little, that's just a little punchline, you know, that's trying to pass itself off as characterization, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, it's fascinating to me. In a way, this really is looking down the barrel of what what Marvel Comics is going to become for a long time. And that's that's pretty grim. And it's also sort of ironic that that gets embodied in this storyline, which is... In that, that is the days of Future Past. Yeah, exactly. So that part's kind of weird. And then when you're through with this story, you get an amazing panoply of backups. Uh, you get the first of two of the two of the Marsha Rosenberg epic um, and uh, in which she has been granted powers by her boyfriend, the Molecule Man, and she has not only a Volcana power, but she can basically turn into a uh, hardened lava stone character and spoilers in the next issue of the annual we get to see her turned into actually an ash volcanic ash character. What does this have to do with the FF? Absolutely not a goddamn thing. There's a framing device in the first story, which is like, Oh, I'm Dr. Doom. And I happen to know what happened to, to Owen Reese. And I know that I suspect that he dropped a bunch of power into this woman. And now I will study her and scrutinize her and see her adventures so that I may be able to conquer her later because I am doom. Um, but it's basically kind of like a, it feels like a Marvel premiere inventory issue or maybe half of one issue that just gets dumped into an FF annual. Uh, and it's it's interesting. I mean, it's sort of like... It, I found it oddly charming. I did too. I, 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 I'm going to be honest. There's mm -hmm. something really uh, sweet almost. Mm-hmm. About the idea of Volcana, who is, I mean, a supporting character to uh, an occasional supporting character right. in the FF, mm -hmm. getting two solo strips. Yeah. But I get the feeling it's written by a guy called James Brock, who mm -hmm. actually draws the next one as well. Does he? Yeah, and I get the idea that James Brock actually really likes Volcana and is like, no, I can, I can do something with her. Well, this I, is I, it. I can mm -hmm. turn her into a, a, a protagonist. And there's something that I really appreciate about that. Well, it does. It feels very much like the first issue of a Marvel superhero comic done by someone who hasn't done a lot of comic work before. And so... It's kind of off-brand, but it, A, it's also interesting, and it's an attempt to do a, 
what if just a regular Jane got superpowers and the person that she is, you know, is is mostly on brand with the Marsha Rosenberg that we've seen in the pages of FF and Secret Wars as the Molecule Man's um, girlfriend. You know, yeah. she is mostly a passive character and kind of maternal, but is protective of people. And so I sort of liked I the things that I liked about it. One of the things I liked in this story is she more or less does things with superpowers. And then afterwards, a cop is like, you know, hey, lady, where the hell are you going? Like, you've got to like, you know. Basically, you've got to make a statement. And she's like, I can't. I'm a superhero. I've got to hide my secret identity. And he's like, all right, well, let me see what I can do to help. Like, the fact and that... He, and he gives her, like, a gas mask, which is the best thing. Like, there, there's something wonderfully... Again, I'm coming back to charming. I'm coming yeah. back to sweet. Mm -hmm. But there is something great about the fact that she really wants to be a superhero, but she's kind of inept at it. And she's like, I kind of know how you get to be a superhero, but I don't really know how to do that yes yeah well and i think in a way some of the stuff that she does where it's like i'm just trying to do a good deed and then essentially there's the cop who ends up becoming a supporting character who's mainly just trying to help her you know and it kind of just ends up working like at one point you know she's kind of she says to him like what do i do now and he's like uh, you are new at this, aren't you? It's like, first off, we split off. She'll probably chase one of us. You probably lead her away from the hospital. And she's like, and then he's like, I don't know. I hope you win. And I'm like, it's, it's charming. Like you said, it's charming and it's sort of sweet. And honestly, it kind of, the execution is different from from the Marvel 70s house style, but at the same time, it's kind of, it, I was like, oh, this is sort of hitting my sweet spot of this is a Marvel comic, you know? And Right? It, yeah. it feels like if this was the first issue of Volcana, I'd check out the second issue. I totally would. I was actually kind of happy when I looked in the annual, the next annual. I'm like, oh, she's back. I'm kind of happy about this, you know? So... Then, following that is, holy shit, what a strange fucking thing. Here's the thing. We've read the sequel to this story. Because the sequel to the story is, is Fantastic War 351, which we covered last episode. Oh, right. You're right. Holy shit. Beyond and, it's and Back. Kaminsky, yeah. It is, uh, is Cubic and... Uh, what, Cosmos. What? Cosmos, yes. Yeah. Who, Cosmos is the former Molecule Man and Beyonder combination. They turned into a Cosmic Cube. And then, as Cubic points out, you have chosen a female form. Right. Sorry, you have chosen a female aspect in this existence, I see, he says. Mm -hmm. um, and it's... It's... Uh, it's... It's I kind. I mean, what is it? Well, it's, okay. it's not really a story. It's a no. Uh, it's not. It, it's a guide to Marvel cosmicness. Yeah, basically, sort of the same way that the um, that there's the the Serpent Crown story has the Watcher basically doing a here's what you need to know about the Serpent Crown kind of story backup. It's 
basically an introduction to the Marvel Cosmic Universe, um, although there's a hook to it that ends up being screwed up because they end up printing this, the pages of the story out of order, which is amazing to me that they fucked that up. And of course, I'm like, since it's a GIT core thing, maybe that's why they never like did the Marvel Unlimited thing because they're like, we would have to straighten it out. Fun fact for people, it's super early Greg Capullo doing yes, work, it doing is. the art. Um, it's, it, I completely unrecognizable as Greg Capullo. Yeah. Len Kaminsky uh, draws, and I actually we should say James Brock wrote the Volcano Strip uh, with uh, uh, Mark McKenna. Yeah, Mark McKenna doing art. Although mm-hmm. Mark McKenna is normally an inker, is you, James Brock right? This draw this as well. I think he did, and McKenna I must think. have been the inker. That would make yeah. sense, right? So, yeah, so James Brock, James Brock is the writer artist of Volcana, and I wish he'd done more. Me too. Me too. Don't know what happened to him. Then Len Kaminsky, as you point out, who pops up back on uh, 351, writes this. Greg Capullo does the art with Larry Malstadt doing the inks. And there's a special thanks to Rudy Rucker, um, I suspect, over the fact that essentially what happens is uh, Cubic has Cosmos essentially scale up through the stars. They get to see, you know... uh, Phoenix, the Watchers, the composite beings, the uh, then the big celestial characters, uh, and then you know the the character the the dark characters. Essentially, they grow larger and larger and larger up to a point where they grow be outside eternity, and then they start seeing the building blocks of all matter, and they essentially emerge um, through the microverse back to the regular scale of things. So, um, you know, it's it's a travelogue story and it's, you know, it. I didn't find it quite as dull as Peter Sanderson's stuff, so I guess it wins, but... Um, I, I, I guess, but it, it doesn't... There's nothing there, if that yeah, makes sense. Right. Like, it, it, it's it's a travelogue where the... the all that's there is the travelogue. Right, and it's a travelogue of abstract concepts. Mm-hmm. So unless you have bought into the abstract concepts and the idea of Marvel Cosmic, yeah, it is you know eight pages of just like and here is something and here is something and here is something right. and here is something mm-hmm. and at the end we have seen something. <laughs> yes, you know, and you're like, uh, sure. Right. Okay, I well, guess. And again, this is this weird fucking thing where it's like the FF annuals, and I guess all of Marvel annuals, I'm assuming, have become, it's like an anthology book. You know, it's a... Yes, it, it, and it's an anthology book where there is a lead strip, which is kind of shitty, and then some just weird-ass random backups. Yeah, by people who are clearly just, I'm assuming, getting their start, you know, weird, weird, so goddamn weird. Um, yeah, 100% weird. Yeah, so... It, so, actually, no, let's do Annual 24, and then I'll ask the question that I was going to ask. Okay. Annual 24 is from 1991, mm-hmm. and it is the first part of the Korvac Quest. Mm-hmm. Everyone who remembers the Korvac saga from the Avengers is doubtlessly 
overwhelmed with excitement to revisit Jim Shooter's omnipotent Jim Shooterness of the whole thing. Yeah, I, I can only make this sweeter for you by telling you that the main story is written, penciled, and inked by Al Milgram. Yeah. Not only is it written, penciled, and inked by Al Milgram, it's Al Milgram trying to play in Walt Simonson's space, mm. mm-hmm. which is a... Uh, uncomfortable combination to, to say the least uh, it's called future tense or the one who doesn't know because of course it's an or because again he's following Simonson. that's actually really a good point uh it's uh again it's it's kind of a fucking mess it's a huge I, mess yeah we, we should also point out that the story the main story starts off with once more three pages of exposition yeah recapping the Corvax saga and then a retcon involving Galactus that then brings in the time variance authority from Simons and Run yeah at the same point but somehow manages to both lampshade the Mark Grunewald joke and miss the point of the Mark Grunewald joke simultaneously yeah yeah yeah, Jeff. Why don't you tell the Why do you tell the lucky people what they didn't read? <laughs> I don't really know how I can necessarily sum it up. I will mention I happen to be a fan of the original Corvac saga. So the fact that I they were doing Corvac Quest, yeah, did the Avengers read with us? Yeah, I weirdly um was never down with the idea of revisiting Corvac. I thought that the whole thing basically works more or less only when you do it once, which is kind of a weirdly, um, uh, what, what's the right word? Heretical idea to have, uh, with regard to superhero comics. But, um, for people who never read that saga, essentially Korvac, who was an amazing sort of dashed off character who popped up in a defender's annual that I dearly love written by Steve Gerber and Jim Starlin and drawn by Starlin and maybe inked by Sal Basima. It's a giant size defenders number three it's, or four. It's four. One of my favorite all time comics. And I used to actually have it burned into my brain where there was three or four. It's one of the two. Uh, he later basically ends up as the supervillain of of Jim Shooter's uh, Korvac saga, which basically is he gets the he gets godlike power by raiding Galactus's house. What does he do with it? He turns himself into a wasp in Connecticut who gets to fuck because, of course, that's what Jim Shooter is convinced anyone with godlike powers aspires to be. In the original saga, the Avengers. Uh, uh, and when we say the Avengers, we mean like a team of like 30 some odd superheroes plus the Guardians of the Galaxy all descend, try to beat him, more or less fail, and he dies of a broken heart, which would help if it weren't for the horrific Milgram-esque retcon of no, actually what happened was he sensed that Galactus, who has figured out that someone has been fucking with his stuff, grabs the ultimate nullifier, um, launches its omnipotent beams through the universe, but before they can hit Korvac, he more or less commits suicide, but also projects parts of his brain into all kinds of people. And I got to tell you... Well, well, he commits suicide to avoid the ultimate nullifier. Exactly. Like, it's it's a strategic suicide. 
by dying before the nullifier hits him, uh, he is basically more or less able to uh, escape being nullified and having his timeline rewritten, and therefore is able to launch his spirit, a cosmic gene packet, which will seek out a genetic ancestor of Michael Korvac and imbue him with the godlike power. Now, I mean, this really is just a fucking. This is this is an this is another FF annual that opens up having almost nothing to do with the FF, being buried well, in just very very clearly having nothing to do with the FF. Yeah, the FF literally get brought into it because. After Korvac sends his spirits in in out of his body, it cuts to the Guardians of the Galaxy in the future who are like, "Oh shit, Korvac sent his spirits to other people. We should hunt it down. Should we get the Avengers? Nah, they're probably busy. We should probably get someone though." Hmm. Well, if we look in the back issues of the Fantastic Four, they've just recently done something with the Galactus and the Ultimate Nullifier. Let's call on them. It's that random. Yeah. It's it's more well, but you know the thing that sucks. I mean, apart from all the many things that the only thing that I really liked about this issue, spoilers, is the fact that Milgram is so excited to basically break out the Mobius rift to, that Simonson used on the Time Variance Authority that he draws them. Really does a great job, I think, drawing the TVA, which is considering that is. I, I'm glad you think that. A page. Did you not think so? I thought I thought the I th- I think thing was terrible. Bad. I think he does a terrible job. Really? Oh, yeah, I think he does the most half-assed quasi Simonson. Oh, that's I, so I, funny. I think it's really, really, really shitty. Bless him, he's trying. Yeah, that's true. Don't get wrong. Bless him, he's trying. And he's also trying with his Galactus. Yeah, uh, earlier on the issue to to try and channel Simonson as well, mm-hmm. and I think there's something to that. I I think he should be applauded for trying to bring some Simonson to his yeah. portrayal of these these concepts. Right, but I think he does it terribly. Well, terribly, terribly, terribly. That's very we'll, funny. We'll put pages in the show notes and people can judge themselves. Can, can decide for themselves, yes. Although I'm sure that this is kind of the, uh, do we care? But the thing that makes just no, ridiculous sense, no sense to me, is is that, so Korvac is dying in more or less our present and shoots his little uh, gene packet, cosmic gene packet, into the future to one of his genetic ancestors Cormac has no kids he's a cyborg from the future that manages to create himself into a human no, body it, it, no. so it doesn't matter that he has no kids he's sending it to one of the people who is ultimately responsible for his creation oh for his and, creation oh I see okay. and, and, and spoilers uh, for his birth he is he gets born by the last chapter of the story Ah, okay. That as, sort of as, makes as sense. A baby, as okay. a human baby. All right. So that makes sense. Since he came from the future, therefore his ancestors can still be in our, our present. Yes. But it, yes. it was deeply, deeply confusing to me. And also, it was also th- sort of thrown off by the fact of... Um, Crystal X says, So the threat of Michael Korvac still exists. What must we do, Starhawk? Go back in time and re-enlist the Avengers in a second attempt to defeat him? And Starhawk's like, no, we must again travel back in time to Korvac's last living moments. Perhaps we will have to face him alone this time, 
or perhaps as we approach that time nexus, my knowledge will return and I shall be able to choose, uh, better able to choose allies. Well, as they go back, he realizes that because the FF in the future, mind you, have faced down Galactus and figured out a way to nullify him, that therefore they should be the dudes that they should recruit but the whole idea of hunting down Korvac's ancestors, um, which is not really mentioned by anyone in those pages, suddenly becomes a thing that they decide to do. And what's worse, one of his aunts... Oh, I, don't, I can't even describe the rest of the issue, Graham. You just, you're going to have to take it over because I'm just, I'm just going to start throwing my iPad around, basically. Um, they show up. The, the Guardians of the Galaxy show up. Yep. Having decided that it they should it should definitely be the Fantastic Four, because of course it should be the Fantastic Four. Don't even ask. And explain everything to the Fantastic Four. Reed is so into it that he invents a new machine that will track Korvac's brain magic, but he can't do it himself. He needs the help of Hank Pym. Why? Yeah. Because Al Milgram likes Hank Pym, I guess. Yeah, like, I guess so. It's it's a one. It's like a, a page and a half cameo that is inexplicable to me. It's it's sort of not though. That it sounds weird, but there's there's two gimmies here. Supposedly Hank Pym shows up to to basically reduce the self-contained time redundancy probability field projector down to something that Vance Astro can wear without fucking up uh, by, you know, the time paradox, since he's actually from this time, but isn't in blabity blab, who knows? But the real MacGuffin is, is that Reed says like, ah, I have one more item that needs your attention, Hank. It's in the adjacent lab. And the fact that they walk off off panel and then the next thing you see oh, sure. is like it's, Hank Pym driving away. Up, yeah, it sets yeah. up the thing at the back. But again, why does that have to be Hank? Um, like, Reed can't do that himself? No, because they're, they're... the Pym particles actually shrink um, Reed's super MacGuffin. Like he's... No, I, I, no I, I get that. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, there's no other way to, to hide the MacGuffin. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, you look at you look at stuff. You actually have a sequence where Mister Fantastic has like his like Corvac locator, the subphotonic spectro analyzer, literally sh sort of shoved down the front of his pants. You know what I mean? Like it's just it... uh, anyway. So what happens is they go, they find a woman in Australia. She's like, everything's fine. No, wait, I'm Korvac, and I'm going to fight all of you, and I've beaten you all, apart from Reed's. And Reed's like, luckily, I have a tiny little fucking time platform that I can squish myself through. Again, why is this, like, why is it small? Why does it make a point if he's squishing himself through it? Yeah. Also, to make things remarkably complicated, he travels back in time so he can talk to Gateway of the X-Men, who he's seen previously in the issue so the gateway can send them to connecticut in in the past where he grabs the ultimate nullifier ray puts that through the time portal then puts himself also through the time portal at the same time <laughs> so that he can shoot the ultimate nullifier ray 
at the ancestor of Korvac, prompting Korvac's brain to leave her body so that the Osmolar again vanishes. Dissipates. Which is, like, what? Like, right? Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, it's so bizarrely overly complicated, and yet all in the service of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So that happens. The the Corvax spirit has gone on. Uh, the guardians are like, uh, I guess we'll chase him. And the FF say, "You, why don't you just have our MacGuffin to chase him? Here you go. We're not going to help. No. But this this might help. On you go. And then they are met with someone from the Time Variance Authority who's like, "Will you stop fucking around in time? Will you just give me your t- give me your time machine?" Give me your fucking time machine. And Reed goes, okay, got one at home anyway. Catch you later. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. The, and that's not true. The end of the story is actually the time variance guy saying, grr, while shaking his fist. Yeah. Okay, that part was not well handled, I admit. But, oof. Wait, wait is there something in this story that's well handled, Jeff? No, there's nothing in this story that is well handled. It's all badly handled. And I have to say also that for a Fantastic Four annual, not only have we got a situation where it's a Fantastic Four comic where the FF have no reason to really exist, but when we say the Fantastic Four, we really just read mis- re- mean Mr. Fantastic. You oh, know what we, I mean? We, we really, really do. Yeah. The, the, the rest of them are there going, we might as well come along for the ride. Yeah. No, exactly. There's one point where I think the Human Torch, like tries to, um, you know, uh, attacks uh, the Korvac ancestor. And that's the only thing that anyone in the the FF does, you know, that isn't read. Like, everyone else is literally just running around. I don't, every once, I think maybe Sue has one word balloon of dialogue. Maybe, maybe two. It's, I mean, it's a shitty comic, but it is, it is such a super shitty Fantastic Four comic. It's it's a shitty comic that is not really a Fantastic Four comic at all. Jeff, as I said, uh, I also read the other issues of the Corvax wow. Saga. Wow. Uh, would you would you want to know how it finishes? Again, parts two and three are entirely surplus to requirements. Okay. One hundred percent unnecessary. Really. Part two, they go to the future and they meet future Thor, mm-hmm. and there's another Corvax ancestor who is possessed and then Korvac's spirit leaves the end. Part three, it's the same thing again. It's another point in the future. Silver Surfer is now the protector of the universe. Mm-hmm. But again, the Korvac spirit fucks off the end. Mm-hmm. Part four, Jeff. <laughs> How could this end in a way that is even more shitly than what you've seen before this? I honestly can't imagine. The Korvac spirit possesses Korvac's father at the moment of Korvac's own birth. No! Oh, wait. Conception or birth? Birth. Okay. Causing the Guardians of the Galaxy to fight him. Then when Korvac is actually born, he pulls his own spirit back into his body, which results in Korvac's father dying. Which means that Korvac's mother... Tells Korvac, I will raise you to be the enemy of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, no. Oh. Yep. 
Wait, yep. who writes that one? What annual is Get that? Valentino. That's Guardians of the Galaxy annual one. Of course. Okay, got it. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yep. So all I'm saying is Fantastic Four annual number 24 is shit. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's still better than the end of that serial. Mm-hmm. It, it, these are these are bad comics. We are in a bad time for comics. But hey, we're not done with this issue yet because there's a second Volcano story. Ashes to Ashes. Again, <laughs> penciled by James Brock, this time inked by Jeff Albrecht and Tim Zahn. It's, it's again, a perfectly serviceable superhero comic. It's a very Marvel comic again mm-hmm. because it, it's very much about the... And this is kind of tying in what we were saying about Claremont before. It's very much about the interior life of Volcana and, and Molecumon. Yeah. Who comes back. Molecumon comes back to life at this point and is essentially revealed to have not gone to see Volcana because he's embarrassed because he no longer has his powers. Spoilers, he'll get his powers back in the story because he hid his powers inside Volcana, which is why she has the new powers herself. Mm-hmm. They get attacked claw the issue essentially ends with her rejecting the molecule man because he was ready to kill claw well kill claw and hide stuff from her and to be fair i i do have to say i like this story less than the previous issue yeah in part because uh owen is very much um written out of character in order to plot hammer their their breakup and ending um and that and that sucks because the rest of it again has very much a oh i'm a beginning superhero and i don't quite know what i'm doing angle which i like um and and again i sort of like that marcia is a warm character and also there is the fact that um i do appreciate that james brock in both of these issues remembers that Marsha is sort of a is a Zaftig woman um and doesn't like makes it a point to make her attractive but doesn't make it a point to minimize the fact that she's a Zaftig woman she doesn't suddenly become you know a balloon a typical balloon breasted super skinny armed woman um but she's also sort of made attractive in a way that is not kind of um, super objective You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, in, in that sense, it was kind of really kind of responsibly done, I thought. And so if it wasn't for the fact that I thought the ending was super forced um, and the fact that Claw is kind of... Uh, doesn't like there were things that claw was doing where i'm like is that really the thing that claw can okay whatever i don't care i guess i don't know you know so um better than lynn kaminsky's story i have to say but uh... (laughs) well okay so so the volcano story is i think you're completely right by saying that it is still charming and yet less charming than the, the, the first setting but again if this was the second issue of a comic Yep. I would read the third. I absolutely would as you well. You know, mm-hmm. there, there is something very classically Marvel about the volcanic, volcano story and the amazingly overwrought soap opera of it. Yeah. You know, like it ends with her crying as the Molecule Man flies away and having an, an internal monologue about how she loves him, but she can't be with him. Yep. 
you know, and and there's there's there is something that feels very Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know? absolutely, very much so. And and again, it's all clearly kind of being angled like. Marsha's friend, uh, Anna, whoever that we see at the beginning, who's basically been Annie, who's been little more than, a, you know, sort of concerned MacGuffin through the issue, ends up showing up with, I believe, Marsha's real mom and maybe her brother, I think, you know, like there's literally a supporting cast, like ringing the doorbell, just waiting to come in and, and introduce themselves to us when the issue ends. So it's kind of like all the pieces are in place and it's, and it is kind of a bummer that as, as far as I know, it doesn't end anywhere else. So, right. It feels like there should be another chapter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I so, mean, maybe actually, I did not read the next annual. Maybe there is another chapter in annual 25. There is not. I uh, looked, I, I, I did I, look through okay. 25 and there's another one of those Peter Sanderson like stories that help sum up what's going on in the main story. There is kind of like another tryout piece, I guess, which is the like that the oof, the um, Mantis versus Moon Dragon fight, which literally has to be seen. I want to say it. The cliche, you have to see it to believe it, is not applicable because you have to see it and realize you still cannot believe it. So it's it's a piece that needs... <laughs> I, I look forward to that, It Eli. needs to be experienced. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, but yeah, anyway, the Volcano, the Volcano story is, is good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I think it's, it's another good story. And you're right. It is so much better than the Super Scroll short that follows, which... I, I, it's, it's not only is the Super Scroll short bad, but Super Scroll short is a follow up to a Silver Surfer subplot. Right. Like there was literally no reason for it to be the Fantastic Four annual. Yeah. Yep. Well, which is fine. I mean, part of me is like Volcana's pretty hard to, but like you literally start with the Super Scroll flying with his Human Torch like powers over a crowd of cheering scroll and then he shows up he basically walks into the next room with the empress who basically tells him that he cannot go and get revenge against captain reptile because he's supposed to be dead and she's trying to keep him under wraps so that people won't know that he's still alive despite the fact that he just flew through a fucking parade and the and she says like even now my disinformation agents are spreading the rumor amongst our enemies that your appearance today is but a carefully staged fraud designed to keep the knowledge of your death from the scroll people i'm like what like literally like you've got like when you have a story that is only 8 pages long and basically on page 3 they're telling you that what happened on page one and two really should not have happened is unbelievable. Also, what's disturbing as hell is the fact that the scroll empress dresses all in green so that basically she looks topless in the scenes where she's like chastising the super scroll, except for the blue stripe running over her crotch, which just makes her look more naked and weird. Like, yeah, it's there. There's nothing that is not weird about this story. Nothing. 
there's not then when she shows up again like honestly i don't i don't know what they were thinking i just don't know what they were thinking i so don't know what they were thinking i mean all all i can think is this really does pay off something in silver surfer right and they're assuming that everyone who's shooting silver surfer is reading fantastic four right yeah. Because as a short in and of itself, I mean, it's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten pages that do nothing yeah. like in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't introduce the conflict. It doesn't introduce the, the reason why he's supposed to be dead. It shows Captain Reptile, mm-hmm. but it doesn't like explain who he is or no. what their history is. Yep. It's the weirdest chart. It I only works, I think, if you're reading Silver Surfer. I, well, see, that's it. I sort of half wonder if more or less Len Kaminsky was told, like, hey, Steve Englehart's going to be out at, on Silver Surfer. We want you to take over the book. And Kaminsky's... Well, at, at this point, Steve Englehart is out and has been for a while. Oh, has he? See, it doesn't even show. Then whoever's supposed to follow. This basically feels to me like the kind of thing where at the bottom blurb, it's supposed to say, like, follow how the you know Super Scrolls Revenge is going to backfire on, on him in future issues of Silver Surfer written by Len Kaminsky or something. And then, I don't know, you know, he turned in this story and they're like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. but I guess, I guess we do have 10 pages spare in the Fantastic Four on you. Right, exactly. Exactly. Like, ugh. Yeah, it's, ugh. it's just... But again, you're, we're left with an anthology where the lead story that theoretically features the title characters backgrounds the title characters and then you have oh we actually completely ignored the origin of the fantastic four two-parter the 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 first two pages of the the issue oh yeah which are i mean astoundingly generic (laughs) yeah really i was impressed that there was really nothing to say about them one way or the other you know um you know, what's interesting, Graham, is I feel like on our previous episode of the Baxter Building, I was really wrestling with the idea of like, well, or I guess two episodes of the Baxter Building ago, it was, do I like the Fantastic Four? And not really knowing. I have to say what I'm fascinated by is reading these annuals, not so much not so much the burn issue, actually, but these reading these last three annuals in a row is very much uh, like the people at Marvel don't like the Fantastic Four. They don't care about the Fantastic Four. You know what I mean? Like there's really no evidence here that suggests. And it it's interesting for people who sort of felt that, I mean, maybe this is a sort of iteration thing that happens to every generation of Marvel fan is the idea that there comes a point where the people in charge of Marvel seem to care more about the Marvel universe or Marvel continuity than they care about the actual characters seems to me to be this rallying cry that gets issued every decade. But at this particular point, when you get here after three annuals in a row, it's like, why would anyone care about what they're reading? Like, there is no effort that is made to make the characters... I mean, to make them interesting is like two steps beyond what these annuals failed to do. These oh, annuals say, failed to, to these, include them to in these, them. Yeah. 
Yes, to make these characters present in yep. these annuals. Yep. You know, 22, 23, and 24 are Fantastic Four comics in name only. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because they're not... Like, not, none of these stories are actually Fantastic Four stories. Yeah. They're, they're overgrown issues of Marvel 2 and 1 that aren't even remembering that the thing is supposed to be a character in the book. Right. Well, because they're stories... They're arguably... They're... At your most, at the most generous, they're Marvel Universe stories, right? They're stories about events that have happened or are happening in the Marvel Universe that sort of take in all the characters of the Marvel Universe. Except, I'm assuming you would know because you read the annuals, it doesn't really seem to care about any of those characters any more than they care about the FF here, like. There's this weird... Well, to, okay, to help you with this, mm-hmm. the Thor and Silver Surfer annuals do not feature the regular versions of the characters at all. Right, which at makes... All. Of course, of course, right? You know, at, at least the the uh, Days of Future Present storyline are, for the most part... I mean, you know, it's not a Fantastic Four story, but it is very much an X-Men story, mm-hmm. you know? Which uh, would and, make and sense the, to me. The X-Factor and... Mm-hmm. and New mutants, New mutants. Mm-hmm. issues feel like X Factor New Mutants comics, right? Well, at least or, there's for that. better or worse, right? Slash worse, but <laughs> well, well what? So you know, we've covered four annuals here, mm-hmm. and it's worth noting that the first one is four years earlier yes. than the remaining three. Yeah, but the first one feels like a Fantastic Four comic. It does. I'm, I, admittedly, one where the Wondered to an Avengers comic by the end of it, but like the first two thirds of it are are a Fantastic Four comic. Mm-hmm. There are John Byrne Fantastic Four comic, which has has all the problems with that. But by the time you get to twenty two, twenty three, and twenty four, there's a sense of no one's quite sure what to do with the Fantastic Four. Well, I think you put your finger on it. Like the FF become. Like it starts off as an FF story, but it literally ends with an FF where the FF are making a cameo in their own comic because it's really the pages from the Avengers annual at that point, right? So mm-hmm. even then, even then, when it's Burn doing the FF during his big, you know, FF centric run, it's they still end up dis. It's like they disappear three quarters of the way through, as you point out, and then they more or less are absent through 22 through 24. I have to say, it really does make Enkelhart's work read, those two annuals read much more strongly. Like, Well, especially because they are very clearly Fantastic Four comics. Yes. They may not be he, he the classic the team, but... So much. Uh, yes. They're foregrounded. There is the other characters like Doctor Doom or the Inhumans have their own needs and character arcs and how those collide with the FF because at that point, you know, it's Crystal is a member of the FF and so therefore it is her, you know, like... I mean, there's a little risk even with the Inhumans versus the High Evolutionary because it's part of Evolutionary War of that stuff sort of... It very well could have slipped out of um, Englehart's hands and ended up reading like issues 22 through 24. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, really doesn't, which is to his... You know, because he more or less he turns it into a Quicksilver story, I suppose. You know, Um, but... 
it's it is it is weird it really is like uh the marvel cannot the people cannot be bothered to care about the ff and like you said or don't know what to do with them they be they are inert like they only exist in the sense of whatever grand marvel universe story they're telling but even then like you said the the comparison of it being a marvel two-in-one comic where ben is gone uh really hits close to home because the thing is in these issues he does nothing and most of them says nothing and most of them he's got a few pages in well a few panels in the atlantis attacks issue where he's like god help me i'm murdering my own girlfriend which is weird but at least it's uh, at least it's a character beat you know what i mean like he has they have nothing like if you think about the ff where it's once you when it's again it's just reed richards and reed richards just merely exists as the world's most visual um plot hammer slash exposition machine you know yeah it, it's it's kind of amazing how much it devalues the entire concept of fantastic four in these issues yeah 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 so uh it's it's a pretty depressing set of comics and in that sense i do have that feeling of like like i have to say the bar has been lowered that I might find myself enjoying the DeFalco Ryan issues just because all they have to do is be better than this, which seems like yeah, all they have to be do is hard. be fantastic for comics. Well, yeah, right. I guess you're right. That's all that's required. I'm shocked that we read this many annuals where that wasn't even the case. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Like yeah. it's genuinely amazing that we read four fantastic four annuals and it's kind of hard pressed to say okay they were they were fantastic four annuals right right yeah 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 i don't know and it it's it's interesting it really is a time um that uh, of of marvel where i'm kind of like i'm fascinated to the extent to which this stuff really does set up no, knowing what's coming, which is basically the the revolution of the image artists hitting Marvel, um, it kind of makes like it, it is it is hard to argue with the idea that Marvel needs a shakeup by the time that those guys arrive on the scene. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like at the same time, I do think that what you see here is such a weird devaluing of well i think like what you see under Engelhart, the idea of if you're if you're going to take out the idea of progress you either have you basically just get down to the idea of riffs and frankly if you're in a in the comic book business crazy like artist riffs seem probably like they're going to be more appealing than writerly riffs because this yeah. hand of writerly riffs is like really nothing like mm -hmm. really kind of weirdly nothing-esque you know yeah yeah so. entirely
Yeah, it's um, it's a really depressing bunch of issues. Yeah, <laughs> it's genuinely depressing. I gotta say, I, and, mm-hmm. you know, we were making jokes about oh, you know, let let's put off doing the, the Falco Ryan issues, but these issues just make you think. Oh, they they don't know how to do the Fantastic Four, right? Like Marvel doesn't know how to do this. Marvel doesn't want to do this. Well, see, and I think that's the other thing. They just don't want to do it. Like, there's no... I don't know how you... Like, once... Like, once you sort of snap back from, like, Byrne and or Englehart, like, you get someone like Simonson who's like, yeah, I've got my... The things that inspired me about the about the Fantastic Four, and here they are. And perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a little whiff of even then, the FF might be pretty tangential to that, to what he likes and what his interests are. You know, I mean, not entirely. I mean, you get you get Reed, you get Doctor Doom, you get that awesome battle. You know, you get a lot of dimension hopping and time travel and bigger than big ideas, but but I think there's that kind of worry, like. Like once you get to the bigger than big ideas, there there's a little bit of the. I wonder how sometimes I wonder how much the Fantastic Four was our love of the Fantastic Four or fandom's love of the Fantastic Four, is kind of a misunderstanding. You know, it's basically the result of two guys. You know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee more or less trying to do two very different comics under the same comic book cover, you know, where it's Kirby doing bigger than big stuff, doing sort of warm family shtick, um, and and then Stan sort of wallpapering over it, wallpapering over the problems or errors that he sees with you know, bathos and pathos and a pushy-ass Reed Richards, you know? And somehow you, you, because they were so good at what they were doing and what they were doing was so unique in the industry at the time, it feels like something that just knocks you on your ass and is like, this stuff works. But it was, no one really realized like kind of how broken it was at the core. And so when you go back and you try and try and get at it, maybe you can, you can't, you can only do so much. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's kind of, I I have to say, I'm very hand-wringing about it. Like part of me is like, I do feel like John Byrne really did kind of do about the best that you could arguably do in the sense of, he had subplots, he progressed the characters, like he took it into a weird-ass place that I don't think we necessarily wanted the book to go, but at least it went someplace and at least he cared about the characters and meanwhile, in his own sort of limited way, was kind of trying to do that, also do the bigger-than-big stories at the same time, you know what I mean? What I thought earlier on, like as we were preparing for this episode, uh-huh. was... You know, it's all downhill from here. Right. You know, starting with this episode, it's all downhill from here. I, I, that's not actually true. I think the DeFalco Ryan issues are better than these. But when I thought that, I then thought, has it been all downhill since Kirby? 
<laughs> like, did this book honestly peak in its first ten years? It's... And it's it's still around. <laughs> like, no. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like, I feel like... I mean, maybe it's just... Again, I I sort of suspect that the life of comic book of comic book superhero characters is not as long as we sort of imagine them to be. I mean, so I mean, yes, on the one hand, you're absolutely right. Did it is does anything get really better than Lee and Kirby? Well, kind of no. But for me, of course, as you know, there's periods where um you know, there's a there's a half-assed attempt to do something kind of different that fails. You get Thomas and Perez doing what I think are perfectly enjoyable pastiche issues. You get Ween and Wolfman breaking up, you know, doing a let's get the band back together. Then everything falls to shit after 200 until Burn steps in. And then Burn's doing... But I... I but you're right. Like nothing's. It's really hard to look at it and be like, like this stuff tops the originals or this stuff. You know, I think. Right? I think basically the close. But I get. But again, I'm like, I'm not sure if that's would be the case if we turned around and did a deep dive into any 300 or 400 ish first 400 issues of a Marvel comic. I don't know. Really? Because part of me... Uh... I, no, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I really thought that that would not be the case. But now I'm sort of starting to wonder. I mean, it's interesting. The only other... The closest thing that you and I have ever done is we re read the first 300 issues of The Avengers. And I think that The Avengers has peaks and valleys. And frankly, mm -hmm. because it starts off being not that great and you only really get 10 issues of Kirby and he's only laying things out and it's all kind of slapdash by the time you get to you know what I think of as the apex which is Englehart stuff you know you're in the 100s and then frankly yeah exactly by the time you get stern you know there's a, to me another weird spike with shooter stuff and then frankly the the stern um Basima Sutton stuff is is at a relatively high level of you know okayness like really highly okay like good stuff so mm -hmm. by contrast I'm like I don't think that I would necessarily subscribe to this theory except part of me is like okay well maybe part of that is like the Avengers started terrible but you know, are we... And, well, and it's, again, the same is true of, of X-Men. Right, exactly. You know, which is the, the series that I would I would make the case for. Yeah. Where I think X-Men peaked with Claremont. Right. But at the same time, that's kind of because X-Men didn't really work before that. Right. X-Men was, was a, a mm -hmm. title in search of a concept. Yeah. It was, was kind of just kind of a just squeaking by kind of comic. You know, then you've got the whole problem of, you know, Spider-Man... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, we could look at all the characters. Like, Spider-Man, you could make the case. Thor, you could make the case. But you look at something like, I don't know, Daredevil, and I think you could very much say that Daredevil doesn't even really get... It's got a couple of okay patches, but for people who want to say that it doesn't become a good comic until 
you know, 160 issues into its run, I think I think there's a case to be made for that. So, you know, but yeah, I think for for books that start high and well, it can be it can be hard to I mean, for one thing, you don't have the shock of the new, but I think also, you know, as we see with the FF, there's a little bit of a of a breaking point that Englehart bitterly you know, more or less chronicles um, in in metaphorical or allegorical form in his final issues of like these these people don't want change, and once you don't have change, there's no point to these comics. I mean, one of the things that I thought was amazing that we didn't have time to touch on, and because I don't think it really goes anywhere, is you have Englehart having the FF confront the FF and have it be about something and you've got the first part of days of future present where the ff confront the ff and it means nothing like it literally has no bearing on anything there's no there's there's nothing uncanny about it you know and i think that really does say something sad by that point you know, the characters are just essentially, you know, figures seen in a hall of mirrors, I guess, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. But there's no there's no actual figures. There's just reflections from this point on. And that's the thing. I mean, you get the FF facing off against the FF. And for that matter, losing against their earlier selves. Yes. And there is nothing said about it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, what's said about it is, this is weird. Yes. Yeah, and that's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and there's there's no... You know, one of the things I said about the, the Volcana backup is, it's got that wonderful melodrama. Like, mm-hmm. the soap opera is, 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 you know, completely over the top. Right. And the fact that there's none of that, when the Fantastic Four fight themselves and lose against their younger versions of themselves. Yeah. Like, there's literally zero. Yep. Yep. Which is mind-boggling. Like, how do you miss that chance? Right. Well, because I think the thing that's weird is that annual is simultaneously completely empty, but also overstuffed at the same time. Like, let's face it, the whole idea that they have, like, Franklin, adult Franklin freaks out and then hides with the Power Pack family and then has to be hunted down. Like, that's just page wasting. You know what I mean? Like, almost any earlier, again, like, not not even pulling from the highlights of the FF, but if this had been an FF annual that had been done by Roy Thomas back in the mid 150s 160s they would have milked the shit out of the FF versus the FF and the FF losing to the old FF and what that quote unquote means both Oh yeah they, they would have that would have had a crisis of confidence in all of the characters Exactly Do You exactly. know what I mean and they would have had to have worked to to better themselves to win by the end of the issue exactly and there also probably would have been some sort of statement that you would have to understand in a meta textual kind of way that would be some sort of 
artistic piss and vinegar statement of like, yeah, sure, we're in the shadow of these guys, but we're going to win because we can grow and change and our future's not set in stone or whatever the fuck it is. But it is literally, it's empty. It's nothing in this annual. Like, you, as you point yeah, it's, out, it's, it's entirely glossed over. Yeah, it, it it is without impact other than just the sort of, the idea of like, oh, it's an interesting visual. And in that sense, maybe it really does be lay the groundwork for the image, the pre-image pre guys, yeah, to basically take over everything. Because essentially the idea of stories meaning things have already become something that the people at Marvel are like, see that as either a luxury or a liability that they just don't have the time or ability to tackle. So what's very funny is we're going from this into the Falco Ryan run mm -hmm. where Ryan is many things, but I would not say he's, he's a visual stylist. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he's, he's, he's a workhorse mm -hmm. and it's so strange to see Fantastic Four over the next 60 issues until the end of the run. Mm -hmm. Try and work under image logic while having a relatively bland artist mm -hmm. and one of their more old school retrogressive writers. Right, which just seems crazy Handling to it. me. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it's so, so strange. And you see them try to keep up. Mm hmm that it is these two creators trying to keep up and doing so in such a ham-fisted way, mm -hmm. I think really definitively seals the fate of the FF as a retro book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the, I don't think the book ever recovers from this run that we're about to head into. Wow. And I don't, I think in retrospect, it's not even, the comics aren't even that bad. Like these annuals are worse than the comics were sure. about to yeah, but there's something about the run we're about to read that I think seals the fate of the Fantastic Four as a retro book, as a book that is out of time, and as a book that is unable to be contemporary. Right. right. I think that's what we're heading into. Mm. And with that in mind, we're doing issues 356 through 361 <laughs> this time, guys. Are you excited now that I've said that? <laughs> 356 to 361, huh? You're going to start us off slow and then uh, speed up as we go on? Because, yeah, because then it kind of gets... I mean, do you want to try and do 12 issues? Uh, God. That, that, seem, yeah. that seems... No, let's uh, start slow. Let's start slow. Let's yeah. start with six, because I think we're going to have stuff to talk about. Interesting. I mean, we'll put it this way. We're over two hours with these four annuals, which we hated. Yes. Yeah, that is totally true. Let's wrap it up, Jeff. Wait, now that I've gotten everyone really excited, <laughs> really, really excited for the next time we're doing a Baxter building, this is when I will say that we will have show notes for this episode up. Probably, again, I'm just going to say at some point on Monday. Because every single time I've been like, no, we're going to have it then some weird shit has happened that has meant it's late so at some point on Monday there's going to be show notes up at waitwhatpodcast.com there is always something up at waitwhatpod.tumblr.com and we have a Twitter account at waitwhatpodcast Jeff has a Twitter account at lazybastid at l-a-z-y-b-a-s-t-i-d I have a Twitter account at Graham M at g-r-a-e-m-e-m -E -E 
and we are a Patreon-supported podcast. In fact, Baxter Building exists purely because of the Patreon support. Jeff, take it away. Yes. Uh, thank you, Graham. Uh, everyone, we are so grateful that you continue to listen to us, even when we are in the depths of Marvel comic-induced despair. Um, we are continually um, invigorated and inspired <laughs> when it's not by the comics, then from the support and the feedback from listeners like you. And we are uh, super grateful to the people at Patreon who make it a point to throw the strange and unique cryptocurrency called Scrollcoin our way in order to keep us um, surprised and motivated and uh, we're especially grateful to the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, for their continuing support of this podcast. And uh, especially in the case of Empress Audrey, to not dress like that creepy scroll in Empress in the backup story. Because really, it, I hope, I don't know, I kind of hope Graham does not screenshot it for the show notes. But it just looks, it just looks wrong. It just looks wrong. <laughs> What about this, uh, the scroll wannabe empress from the burn issue? Also wrong. I just don't know what Byrne was thinking there. That was just such a distressing... You know, I mean, this is the thing that I think is weird, is time has... Time goes on and changes and, like, where we are as a culture. I think it would be kind of really interesting to try and look at the scrolls as a race like they're they're so always written as kind of like barbaric shit heels and i'm like they can look like anyone they they don't they shouldn't have any form of discrimination like the idea that they have some sort of weird imperial caste system when literally anyone can look like anyone else you know what I mean? Like everyone could like the idea that you could have a pretender to the throne, you know, like you could have a throne when you have people who literally can look exactly like that person just seems weird. But also part of me is like, like, it seems ridiculous. The scrolls would not fat shame like they wouldn't have any concept of it. You know, there's like gender stuff going on that that would just be like way more interesting and you just look at the way this stuff is handled in these comics and you're like wow like mm, white dudes really don't like things that are not white dudes but sure like talking about how they love everyone so kind of interesting right I don't know what was your point Graham I don't I hate to say it like I just realized I just started did an old man ramble no i i, I was a fan i you were literally <laughs> wrapping up the patreon thing <laughs> oh right yeah exactly i thought i handed it back to you and then you were like huh what who what oh <laughs> right the oh yeah the distress distressing right so you've got you've got two different types of disturbing scroll lady in like two different annuals listeners if you want Look at them both. Let me know which one you think is more objectionable. I think it could well may be a case could be made that it's a tie. A very distressing, unnerving tie. Graham? Comics, everybody! <laughs>
Hey! Hey! We will be back in two weeks. Yes, we will. With irregular Wade Watt. Actually, it's not even going to be a regular Wade Watt, Jeff, because you're going to be in Portland, Oregon. That's right. It's going to be you and me, face-to-face, making awkward eye contact, going, this is so weird. Normally, we just do this when we're when we're just, you know, on, on the computer, and we don't have to look at each other, and now we have to look at each other, and it's strange. You know what, Graham? You may not like looking at me, but I like looking at you. It's actually the only time we've done this live because it's happened a couple of times now. It's the only time. What do you mean it's the only time? No, we've no, done no, this? no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I, I did a. You're, you're missing the classic Jeff mid-sentence digression. The uh, only sorry. time that doing it live has been weird was when we recorded it, and it wasn't even in your house. When oh, we were in that, yeah, we were in someone else's basement. Yeah, that was weird. That started that getting into weird. the level that of weirdness. That was weird for so many reasons. Exactly. Not least of which we were in someone else's basement and we could hear everyone moving about upstairs. It was just strange. That was just that was a little disorienting. But like, I have pretty fond memories of when we record in your office because, of course, I do get you, to check out your bookshelves and things also, like that. Also, do you remember when we recorded uh, in in the office where I am right now? Um, after we'd just been to, to uh, Plan Nine, Plan Nine, Dream Cloud Nine, Cloud Nine. Yeah, uh, and you bought like a shit ton of comics. Yeah, that you got far too cheap, basically, because you used the Jedi mind trick and the two two hadn't priced them yet. <laughs> You keep making it sound like I did something nefarious. The all, guy and all I, I all I remember is this guy's like, I wonder how much these are. And you're like, they're worth this much. And then I went to the store like two weeks later and he priced other versions of that issue at like three times the cost. So what happened was and this is it this No, is no, it. just 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 leave it like that. I think oh, it's better man. than okay, everyone fair else. Fair enough. Can. Fair enough. Yes. And it, yes. my point was we're back in two weeks with the way it was. <laughs> With a very strange wait, what? Maybe should we do? Maybe we should do call it open for listener questions. Do you think, or something like that? Sure, not. Yeah, let's let's do something like that. So uh, yeah, questions can be emailed to us at waitwhatpodcast at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Feel free to uh, tweet them at us at uh, wait what podcast at wait what podcast right. Yes. I don't know our own Twitter name, even after you said it. Yeah. Very concerned about that. Yeah. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you can send us messages through Patreon. Yep. Yep. All of that will get rounded up. Um, please ask ask the questions you are dying for either for further clarification or just to embarrass us. And we will we will tackle them all. And it will be even more embarrassing because we'll just be face to face being like, oh. Exactly. And then it'll be awkward silences because we can make faces at each other. <laughs> it's going to be good, you guys. Anyway, that's in two weeks. Jeff, it's a Baxter building. So you sing us that. Oh, yeah, I certainly do. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We will see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building.